My God, I think this is a perilous moment for US democracy. We need sponsors to start taking more risks and realise that there is so much untapped potential in women's sport. We are measuring what is deemed to be a successful political interview in a different way. There's nothing inside me that understands how people can judge someone by the colour of their skin. But how you change it, it takes time and it takes education, I believe. Many people will be asking, what is work? Is it this which we've been put on earth to do? What we need to do is shift behaviour where businesses start to be more proactive and take the responsibility to say we are a place for an Olympian newscaster. It goes from being a successful leader to being a significant one when you're a kind leader. That's your legacy. Proper journalism will have its place because people do want authenticity and they're not always going to get that on Instagram. John Sopel, Gary Lineker, Denise Lewis, Roger Mosey, Joe Coburn, Matt Dickinson, just some of the voices you heard there. We really have had some absolutely fascinating guests join us during this first series of the Portland podcast, which gets to the heart of some of the biggest issues of the day. Thank you for being with us. I'm Richard Suchet, a director at Portland. Possibly not for too much longer, though, because today, for the final episode of the season, I'm going to be talking to my boss, what could possibly go wrong. Portland's CEO, Mark Flanagan, is here to discuss the state of our industry post-pandemic, the big challenges and trends that UK businesses should be thinking about in the coming months and years, and we'll talk about how business leaders might navigate the increasingly volatile and polarised nature of public discourse. This is To The Point. So, Mark, hi, it's July 2021, and you and I are recording this podcast together in the same room. I should confirm we are more than two metres apart. It's pretty much the first time I've seen you in person in 16 months, and I still can't get my head around how profoundly life has changed. And you only became CEO 18 months ago. I know lots of people have experience of starting a new job in, in lockdown, and we know how tough it is and you know, what those what those challenges are for those people. But how difficult has it been for you to not only become CEO at this time, but to manage a business through this period? Hi, Richard. Uh, I can't actually really remember much about life before the pandemic. Um, there's the uh, historian, is it Lord Hennessy, who talks about, you know, BC and AC, you know, before COVID and after COVID and, and the world's being very different. So, you know, whatever agendas and objectives we all had beforehand have all had to be uh, revised. I mean, I guess the main thing is on a personal basis, um, I'm lucky. I've been fine. My family's been fine. You know, no health issues. The family have all got on and we've, we've stayed healthy and well. So I guess that's a positive on the professional side. Listen, no one could have had this in their playbook, in their plan. Um, you know, it, it's totally unexpected. And, you know, it's been a test for everyone. And I still, you know, I can remember the events leading up to the first lockdown and how we all reacted. And it says I think quite a lot about the human condition, doesn't it? That we we can change our lifestyles and our routines so abruptly. And in our case, as with many businesses, you know, move to a, a working from home 
situation, focus on supporting each other, on supporting our clients in a completely different way. And the fact that our organization managed that, as did so many more, is is remarkable when you when you think about it. And so the initial phase that I remember was very much around that kind of crisis response. And, you know, the adrenaline kicks in. My immediate response is always, you know, to take take responsibility, um, you know, for the people that I that I employ and for the clients that uh, that support us. And so, you know, I think in, you know, it's, I don't want to get too philosophical about it, Richard, but, uh, you know, I always think in, in, in life, you need a purpose, you need a mission. That's what gives you to quote is it Victor Frankl, the um, psychologist, you know, you need a you need a meaning in your life and you need a purpose. And at that point, I think for many of us, certainly people in leadership roles, your purpose became to, you know, protect what's around you and, and what matters to you. But I'd imagine that all the things that you'd wanted to do or that you thought you were going to do when you came into the role and how you were going to change things, all of that was deemed or, or, or was, was made impossible basically within within two months so that must have been frustrating in a way and actually you know you had to shift your focus to as you say to looking after the well-being of staff and the survival of of the business and you know because nobody knew how bad things would get at the time so that that shift must have been frustrating and must have taken a you know, I'm, I'm sure now things are you can focus on that a bit more but at the time you must have felt at least unfortunate to some extent I don't know if that's right I do I, I think in in any organization, if you're in a leadership role, you almost, you're preparing for the unexpected. So, and remember our organization, you know, was doing very well. So we weren't in a kind of place where we needed to sort of take urgent action. There were, there was an agenda. Um, and actually some of that has been helped and accelerated by the pandemic. So if you take, you know, an approach to flexible working where like many companies, we were probably in the more traditional, you know, in the conservative end of the market. Um, whereas I think, you know, clearly that changed rapidly in that we learned very quickly that people could be at least as productive uh, working from home as, as as they are in an office. And so, you know, yeah, uh, that was a cultural change in our organisation, which might have taken years to put into place, happened within weeks. And um, I think... What happened after that was, you know, you learn a lot about yourself in a, you know, in a crisis about yourself and about your organization. And I think our ability to respond to client needs and really to prove our mettle in terms of, you know, smart, able, uh, skilled people being able to react to what our clients need at that moment, that's really what that's Portland at its best. And so we showed that during the pandemic. And that's what you've got then to build on. So I don't think it was, I mean, they talk about best laid plans. I don't think there was a sort of, you know, roadmap that suddenly got thrown off course uh, that's caused a problem. I think, you know, you're continually learning in these roles. And, you know, we're now into a new phase. I mean, from that initial crisis, we then morphed into this being, you know, more of a marathon than a sprint. And I think there's been different phases of uh, of the crisis. And probably the most difficult was the period, you know, since Christmas. I think we all recognise that was a difficult time um, 
kids, you know, for many of our clients and for many of our staff, had, had kids at home trying to do homeschooling, like 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 yourself. Oh, we I'm sorry to bring up uh, sort of bad memories, but um, you know, we had we had a son come home from university. Um, we've had exams cancelled, you know, for both our sons. Um, you know, they were dark months. You know, bad weather and no end in seemingly in sight, really, despite the the prospect of of the vaccination. And I think at that point there was you know signs of of burnout, Zoom fatigue, all the things that we're now coming to terms with. So that phase then became, I think, even more difficult in terms of trying to, you know, maintain people's uh, spirit. Um, and now we're at a different phase where we're, we're coming out of the immediate crisis, but I think the effects of this, both uh, in people's you know, personal lives, um, health in some cases, and in terms of business and organisations, I think we're, we're entering a new, the, the long-lasting after-effects of this immediate crisis are where we're going to have to sort of turn our minds to, basically. I, I don't want to dwell too long on the past, but it was such a, a crazy time. You know, hotel chains, car rental companies, airports, you name it, everything stopped almost overnight. What do you think it did to our industry, to PR and communications? How, I mean, not, not just to to us, but when you look across across the sector, what did it do? How serious was the impact? Because there were a lot of, obviously a lot of businesses were winners from the pandemic, if you can put it that way. And some people yeah. would have benefited from that. But what's your assessment of, of the damage that it did, if any? Well, I think there was there were some short-term difficulties if you were exposed in areas such as, you know, travel, uh, hospitality, live events. And, you know, there are a lot of agencies that uh, focus on that area or in this sort of experiential world where they they really took a bad hit um i mean the the damage to our business was short term and, and not significant i'm pleased to say and we stabilized you know within a quarter but you could see uh, you know across our industry um you know, huge variation in in how people dealt with it on a kind of financial and commercial level. As you say, there were some sectors, the pharmaceutical sector, the technology sector, which have prospered. Um, and so there've been winners and losers, and it, it very much depends, you know, which sectors of the market you were, you know, you were exposed to. Um, we've also seen on the corporate side of our industry, you've seen deals being done that have made some firms bigger. You know, you've seen mergers and acquisitions, you've seen buybacks. Um, so companies, uh, agencies coming back into sort of private ownership. Um, and you've seen a multitude of startups, you know, PR week tracking something like 20 odd uh, startups in our sector last year. So that's changed the makeup of our industry. So yes, the you know, the, the kaleidoscope has been shaken as it were, and we're still seeing what the outcome and the, the long-term landscape is going to look like. Mm, you're taking me to my next question, really, which was kind of where are we today, do you think? Are we still in recovery mode? Do you think the industry's bounced back? Kind of where are we, do you think, in the, the stage of that, that journey? Well, I uh, think our prospects as a sector are tied to that of our clients. And so I always want to take a step back and look at the prospects for business, generally, um, and society to a, some extent. And I think we're only just coming to terms 
with the real impact of this. Um, and I say that as someone who, you know, I don't profess to be some great soothsayer on this because I probably called it wrong at every stage. You know, in March, I thought we'd be back by June. And I think, June, we I, did. <laughs> I think in June, I said September, and then I said Christmas, and then I gave up. Um, and of course, there was always this sort of, um, you know, new normal narrative. And I'm now of the view that the world has changed forever and that this has got, this is an epoch-making moment that means we won't go back to where things were. So if you think about it from, from a business perspective, and most of the clients we work for are businesses, we also work for charities and foundations and governments and so on. You know, you think about the big hits that uh, businesses taken this century already. You think about the financial crash. You then, on top of that, have a global pandemic, a once-in-a-century event. Um, you've got a climate emergency going on. You add to that rapid digital transformation. You add in Brexit, geopolitical events, um, big sort of culture change, the attitude of a modern workforce and how that's changed. And you put all that together. Well, basically, these are any one of those would have a transformative effect on any organization. And so the communications sector and public relations sector is reflective of that. And we have to adapt to that as much as we can to lead uh, how that change is managed and navigated. So that's not a sort of, a, I'm not avoiding your question, but I do think you have to set it in the context, um, not just about the services that businesses like ours provide to our clients, but the, but the huge backdrop of seismic change that is, is going on. And so we're yet to see what that means in terms of application. And what I always think about is the last year to 18 months during the crisis, I think Clients have needed, yes, hand-holding. They've needed um, crisis support. I think they've needed a lot more tactical help around specifics, whether that's internal comms, employee engagement, research, or you know, creative needs around campaigns. So they've needed a lot of tactical support. I think we're moving into a period where they'll want more and need more strategic support to guide them through that change that I'm that I've talked about, and I think that's where we're going to we're going to shift our focus is to be more around preparing companies for the risks that are out there from all the the kind of big changes. Yeah, I was going to say I'm, I'm sure some people in the past. This is probably the question that'll get me fired, but I'm sure some people in the past have seen PR as a, something of a nice to as a nice to have, but. I think what you're saying is really that you know this year has actually shown that the critical role of communications it's been front and center of as you say crisis response you know it, it's been a critical component of of engaging with staff or suppliers or um you know or customers and 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 I, it feels to me like many businesses are now putting communications kind of right at the heart or giving it the strategic importance now um that perhaps it didn't have five, 10 years ago. I mean, I, I, all the issues you've raised there, it feels like it's it's front and center now. Well, I th certainly think it should be. Um, and I think the crisis has taught us that a lot of leadership is by communications. 
Uh, I'm not saying you can just talk and not do, but I do think when people are working remotely and they're looking for support, you know, in an organization to support them through that period, what you say is really important. And I know a lot of CEOs who've uh, communicated much more to their workforce, much more regularly and much more authentically. Now, whether that's around the support around the pandemic, we also had, of course, you know, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement spring up last year. And those sorts of issues, I think, have catalyzed leaders to demonstrate more understanding, more empathy with their workforce and their other stakeholders. Um, and that is not going to change. So you've got that. And I think people realize increasingly that communications isn't just the promotion of of something that you've done. It actually should form part of the thinking around the action that you're going to take in your business. And so comms, I think, is increasingly at the top table in big corporations and, and any business or organization. And the the communications opportunities and risks around what the actions you're taking in a business now have to be considered right at the front, not let's do this thing and then how do we spin it the best? And I think that's, uh, that is increasingly being understood, I think, at uh, boardroom level. Mm. Well, I mean, I spoke in the intro about the sort of polarised nature of, of public discourse and the importance of and you're talking there about the importance of, of of putting action behind what you're saying and not just saying things for the for the sake of it. And you know, this is a, a shift that's happened over many years, not just it's not just a, a COVID related thing, it's you know, since the advent of, of social media. But at the same time, it, it seems like it is also getting harder for businesses to say anything and say anything meaningful without somebody somewhere kind of rising up and calling you out on it and it's more important than ever to say stuff and to communicate, but it's also getting harder in some circumstances. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And the implication of that should not be that we won't ever say anything. Uh, I mean, not just because I'm in communications, but I just think that's generally the, the worst strategy you can you can deploy. The critical thing is to make sure that you have a clear set of values, you have a clear purpose. I know there's a lot talked about about purpose at the moment quite rightly, but that's not shouldn't be something that is separate from your overall mission and values of an organization. I think if you are clear about what you stand for, then you're on sure ground when you try and either advocate for those values or try and defend them. Um, and companies are going to have to get used to engaging with these societal, cultural and political issues even. I don't think you should do that gratuitously. I don't think you should do it for short-term tactical gain. I think you need to do it as part of a, a long-term strategy to communicate your, your vision and purpose to all your various stakeholders. And if you do that and you do it authentically, then yes, there'll be some choppy waters, but I think you'll get to the other side, you know, in a reasonably secure way and, and in one piece, basically. So um, I think you do need to do it, but the risks, particularly 
Well, I was going to say around culture wars, um, but that might be the latest. That just might be a, a passing phase. I think there are reputational risks coming from all angles. And I think one of the roles that a communications firm like ours can play is to help you see round corners and to plan your response to those and try and see scenario plan as much as you can around the, the various risks from wherever they may come, which could be your your staff, your customers, policymakers, the media, NGOs, you name it. They're all potentially um, could cause you some uh, difficulties. Getting kind of hyper-philosophical and a bit hysteric now, but why do you think that there is this now heightened sensitivity around kind of corporate behavior and and values today? I mean, is it just a social media thing or is there something else that's happening? Well, social media gives people the outlet to express their views around it. I also think there is a potential, and this is not philosophical, this is absolutely the reality now. I think there is a potential disconnect between a lot of the people leading businesses and governments uh, and the generation below them. Uh, you could call them millennials, you call them who you like. But I think that I think younger people have a set of values. And I think those of us in leadership positions from an older generation need to understand those values because they're not going away and they're going to be, it's going to be an increased risk to you if you don't somehow engage with those people and their values. So I think there is various things going on. Um, polarization politically and culturally. And, you know, you can see uh, around the world in the last 10 years, uh, expressions of that through politics. Um, and it finds its expression in other ways through um, the reaction to, to corporate uh, behavior. So people are not as tolerant of bad behavior, not living up to, you know, proper values than they used to be. And they now have the tools to express that through social media and everybody can, you know, pile on and and take you apart. Um, and so, as I said earlier, the thing to do is not to get too defensive, not to put your head in the sand, but to create a position from which you can you can always bring people back to your own, your own values, your own corporate position. Um, but you need to establish that first and you need to live that in everything you do. Uh, but if you do that, then you'll be in a much stronger position to engage in those you know, Twitter wars or whatever it happens to be than you were if you didn't do that. I think that point about younger people kind of being more values driven is a, is a really interesting one. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because wealth aspiration is it, it's it's so out of reach now for many people buying a house will feel impossible to so many people that actually they shift their focus and their priorities and their attention towards other stuff that matters societal issues inequality whatever it may be i think it's for a variety of reasons um i mean our my generation was very much around acquiring, you know, material wealth. Um, not everybody, but the the sort of general purpose for going to work was to uh, earn more, buy a house, buy a car, and so on. As you say, as those things have become more difficult to get, as they're able to learn more about society and other people from digital tools and social media, people are much more aware about how other people live. So 
you know, you can see the effects of climate change or the effects of inequality, I think, much more starkly than we were able to do because we weren't exposed to as much media. So I think if you put those together, we have a generation who who don't think it's all about profit. Now, there isn't, in my view, a trade-off between being you know, a profitable enterprise and profit is what uh, fuels growth and investment and so on, and being uh, more purposeful and uh, values-driven. I think they support each other. And actually, I think increasingly, it will should be shown to add value to the bottom line if you are uh, behaving well. So I think the the generational divide is very real. And what I would say to people in leadership positions who perhaps think this is a passing phase or it's just some young staff who are being overly idealistic and perhaps we shouldn't pander to them. I'm not saying they do say that, but they may think it. I actually would say the opposite. And I think for anybody in a leadership position now has to think about how we reflect uh, the values of the younger people who either work for us or who are our customers. Um, I think they have a fantastic value set. And I think we absolutely need to learn from them. And I learn from the young people that work in Portland all the time. And I think that kind of almost reverse mentorship, not about skills, but about values, is a really important lesson going forward. You spoke about not being able to necessarily see around corners, but if I was to put you on the spot, what are the, do you think the big trends that are coming down the line? What are the the big issues that businesses need to be thinking about? Is it ESG? You spoke about being clear and articulating your, your purpose. What what are those those areas you think that businesses need, need to be thinking about? I mean, some of the things I mentioned earlier around climate and sustainability, I, I think ESG, if you look at it, through the lens of being a set of metrics that you need to hit, uh, and that's all, then I think you miss the point. I think it's a mindset, uh, ESG, and I think you need to adopt that. So I think you have to, for every organisation, you need to map out what those issues are for your industry and for your organisation and try and plan your response as much as you can in advance. I think that's all you can do. I don't think um, the issues of today are going to necessarily be the same in a, in a year's or five years time. Mm-hmm. Are there any kind of big stories or big moments that brands have faced that you can talk to where you think they've got it right or wrong in this regard, where they haven't lived and breathed their values or where, they, where they've misjudged it and it's blown up? Are there any, any examples? Well, fairly recently you saw the controversy around BrewDog. And I think that's a great example where the kind of narrative they told about their business was that it was, you know, extremely cool. It was some, uh, it was almost had the sort of values of a, a kind of tech startup, and it was hugely innovative. And the and the leadership was very vocal uh, externally. And it turns out what lay behind that was perhaps not um, what it seemed to be. I think stepping into issues around, here's a, it's a fairly, I guess, a fleeting and small example around advertising on GB News where, and I know you've, you've covered GB News in a previous podcast, but I, I think, um, you know, brands there 
perhaps not thinking through the implications of what they were saying, which is we're going to boycott this thing or we're going to take, we didn't realize our ads were on, we're going to take them off and have a think about it. I think just you're basically taking sides in a culture war issue where you're never really going to win, I don't think. Um, so I think you, those are probably, you know, they're missteps. Um, but they do quite often come back to a question of authenticity and uh, consistency. And, you know, that's, I think, what we need to focus organizations and, uh, and brands on going forward. You know, if you're, you've got a strong position around sustainability, you know, you absolutely have to be prepared to be shot down if you're being hypocritical or inconsistent in any way. Mm. Interesting you mentioned GB News there, because that is the other aspect of of all this and, and of how much the world has changed in recent years. And that is the relationship with with media. And I, I think it's our industry's relationship with media. It's business relationship with media and also the, the pressures that, that, that newspapers, broadcasters themselves have have been under to to survive. How do you think the relationship is is changing with media? We've got rising paywalls. There's commissioning by algorithm or, or, or you know, chasing clicks. However you want to phrase it. it, there is a the traditional relationship between PR and journalists is is certainly changing, isn't it? Yeah, and you know at least as much about this than I do. I think uh, the last year hasn't helped because we haven't been able to have the kind of face to face relationships nurture the relationships uh, with uh, journalists that we were able to to do. So we're living on a kind of diminishing bank of, of goodwill that we'd built up uh, before the pandemic. And we should uh, be honest that many journalists have, have lost their have lost their jobs over, over this period and, and so there are fewer points of contact. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, the uh, the media itself is being diminished. Um, you know, even the BBC has had to make uh, extraordinary cuts to its uh, news departments and, you know, the print industry, what was called the print uh, industry in Fleet Street is, you know, a shadow of its uh, former self. There are some very, very good journalists who do a sterling job and, you know, under a great deal of of pressure, um, not just in terms of workload, but you hinted at it there, which is to kind of feed the the kind of social media world with with stories that uh, are designed to get clicks. And you can absolutely see it every day now in the kind of headlines that appear on news websites and on social media. Whereas, you know, the headline doesn't appear to really bear much relation to the body of the story. Um, but you can see why they're doing it. And news organisations are investing a lot in research and uh, and data to understand um, what is going to compete for attention on on Facebook and, and other platforms. So that's a different world from how it used to be. And um, it makes our, our job to, and our clients' jobs, I think, not to get dragged into that too much in that to focus on facts and authentic stories and not get dragged into feeding that frenzy because I think it's a uh, it's a it's a damaging cycle. Um, we need to be wary about that. Um, and it does change the calculus, doesn't it, of, of of how businesses might choose to to reach their 
reach their customers or reach their audiences. It's not necessarily that being in a big broadsheet newspaper or being, you know, on the newsstands, that is not necessarily now the best the best way to do it. No, and I think um, you know, we work with more and more clients now on creating their own content. And if you'd said that ten years ago, you it would have sounded like you were just producing propaganda. Um, but that doesn't work either. Self-serving, vacuous content from a corporation posted on LinkedIn really achieves next to nothing. So there's an increasing skill, I think, in creating content for use on your own channels um, that is engaging and meaningful and interesting, um, as well as using the media to, um, to tell your story as well. So I think that has... Uh, has changed the nature of the game. And that's a good thing. And that provides opportunities, I think. You spoke before about newspapers and, and, and the media investing quite heavily in, in data to you know, work out how to maximise the likes of Facebook and so on and so forth. I know data is something that you believe in very strongly for our industry. How, how do you think we are going to be using data in the future to help our clients tell, tell stories? I think um, it's going to be used much more... Um, than it is at the moment in in the work that we do. Um, I think historically, the public affairs and communications sector has relied too much on relationships, contacts, instinct. And I think you need to balance that with proper data and evidence-based strategies. Um, for, for me, it's that bit where you know, artificial intelligence meets human intelligence. We still need the experts. We employ and go out of our way to find the best talent in, in the sector that know about whatever their area of expertise is, whether it's media or, or politics or digital or whatever. And that expertise is critical and is, is really, really important. And I think you, the alchemy for uh, organizations like us is if you confuse data and insight with that instinct and expertise. I think that's where you're able to give clients more than pure numbers, because sometimes numbers don't tell you the whole story, but much more than just gut feel. And my observation of our industry, which I've only been in 10 years, it's not, not a lifetime, was there was perhaps too much based on guesswork um, and instinct and favors and and I think we've we've just or we've come so far and I think we need to or we need to complete that transformation so if you ask me about Portland I would say that's going to be a massive focus and how we can help clients even more going forward together with the internal change that we're making to allow our clients, easier access to our consultants. So it's been a massive change in our industry in the last few years, whereas you'd go to one firm for because they were you know, political experts, another because they knew the media, another because they were good at internal comms. Now you increasingly want a, a set of advisors who can provide you with a, a, a kind of waterfront of, of services and, and capabilities. And you want that to be as easy as possible to access. You want the people and expertise to be at hand. And I think one big change that's happening in our industry is the growth of trusted advisors who are able to offer a range of 
different types of expertise and specialist skills that is knitted together much more seamlessly. And um, I think that and the importance of data are going to be the big uh, the big trends in our industry going forward. And it makes sense because, as you say, it's such a complex world, so many big things to navigate. I guess if clients are going to have faith that the advice is is right, they want to see that it's based in they want to see that it's based in facts. And actually, all these issues are so interconnected that rarely is something simply a political issue or simply a, it, it is all interconnected. And so, actually, what you're saying is that this is a we are basically reflecting back to clients the complexity of the outside world and how yeah. you deal with that. And if we've learned anything in the last year, 18 months, it is the value of experts and data. Um, we're not board of experts here. We're not board of experts. And actually, you know, don't we all love the Chris Whitties of this world? Uh, I love the fact, just anecdotally, that friends of mine, you know, their kids are interested in getting into science a lot more. I know from some of our clients, you know, that they're, they're in the pharma business that you know, their industry is sexy again. And I think that's a great thing. You can um, buy a Jonathan Van Tan t-shirt these days. Yeah, I mean, who knew? Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, it's perhaps the bit that's arguably let us down has been the, the politicians acting more on instinct. I think actually it's when we've, we've allowed ourselves to be informed properly by data and science that we've probably done done better. Now, this is a, a once in a, a lifetime event and therefore, you know, there was no playbook and, and I get all that. So that's, that's understandable that that's been challenging. But I think for most of the uh, challenges and threats that our uh, clients will face, the combination of expertise, people have been there and done that with proper data and evidence where you can plan different scenarios uh, and work out a response is basically the the way forward. And I I would also stress that we've talked a lot about this being a period of disruption and crisis. Crisis and disruption leads to opportunities. And whether it's Portland, whether it's the PR industry, or whether it's our clients, I think when things shake down, we will find there are lots and lots of opportunities for our clients that perhaps weren't there before. And I think to be optimistic about it, I think that's what we should focus on now is what are the opportunities um, that we can gain from uh, the last year, 18 months? Brilliant. Well, it's been fascinating to talk to you. I just have to ask you while you're here, it is the last episode of the series. Any standout moments from the, from the series so far? Um, well, I kind of have to say uh, Joe Coburn as oh, uh, she's I my wife. I think you say my podcast, but you're no. p- followed by <laughs> you just uh, bring the wife first. Yeah, uh, so Joe's uh, podcast for International Women's Day obviously was a highlight. Um, yours, thank you. Yeah. Clearly, Richard <laughs> um, Gary Lineker, I enjoyed because uh, well, he lives near me and he's another centrist dad. So, uh, so I, I like that. But um, and actually, the one on the future of work uh, with Emma Stewart, I thought was was really fascinating and obviously very pertinent to the kind of issues that we're all thinking about. And I don't know if we necessarily have really explained sort of outwardly why we call it to the point, but it might just be worth saying a few words on on, on how we landed on that and, and what it is that we try to achieve. Well, we talk at Portland a lot about how we are 
we pride ourselves on being able to solve problems and to have impact, but also get to the heart of an issue very quickly. And I know that sounds obvious and isn't that what everybody does, but I can tell you there's a lot of advisors in our world who will string out an issue and want to go around the houses. And we want to focus on clarity and getting to the point very quickly around an issue or a debate. And that sounds easy, but actually clarity is difficult. It's much harder to find clarity than it is to kind of sit on the fence and prevaricate. So that's basically what we like to think we do best is at Portland, we get to the point. Hopefully a series two in the not too distant future. Mark Flanagan, CEO of Portland, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook.